Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and it's February 22nd. Calling into Full HQ in Alexandria, Virginia, is the healthcare expert, Todd Campbell. How are you, Todd? What's new? Hi, Christine. How are you today? I'm doing great. So we have a exciting show today. The first half of it is about a company that we actually just talked about last week, which is Bristol Myers Squibb. But this week, we have a totally different reason for talking about them. News dropped yesterday that billionaire activist investor Carl Icahn took a stake in the company. Yeah, in a we don't know how big a stake uh, that hasn't been announced yet. But usually when he goes, he goes big. Yeah, it's, it's presumably a sizable stake because as an activist investor, he is joining on to to make a difference in this company. He's well known for having shareholder uh, value in mind and getting uh, acquiring big stakes of companies and pushing for change to maximize shareholder value, which you just can't do if your stake is a small amount. Right. I think that a lot of our listeners, they're going to know the name Carl Icahn. In, I think that most everybody knows that he's rich, right? Yeah, but, he's know, worth what twenty billion. Uh, yeah, I was I was gonna do a guessing game. You jumped <laughs> you jumped in there a little too quick, but <laughs> Sorry, yeah, Todd. <laughs> no worries. Uh, Forbes, I think the last time that I checked, they had him listed at sixteen point six billion, and obviously that puts him in the top, in the top echelon, the top hundred, definitely of uh in terms of wealth so yeah he's had a long career um you know he's been involved in activism um for shareholders since the uh 70s or 80s you know all the way back to when you know twa was an airline and he's got a rich history that includes you know some pretty interesting involvement in various healthcare stocks over the last 15 20 years companies like i am clone and uh, more recently, Force Laboratories, which um, he helped orchestrate a sale of a $25 billion sale of that company uh, uh, a few years back. So he, he's not a newcomer to the space, um, you know, and, you know, obviously he likes to, to mix things up. So it wouldn't shock me if, you know, when he starts talking, he starts saying things like, I want change. I want change at the top. And I want us to be more shareholder friendly. Right. And something else that I think a lot of people suspect with the stake that he's taking is that he wants to push them to go up for an acquisition, which there have been acquisition rumors surrounding Bristol for quite a while now. But I would say they're a lot more elevated now with Carl Icahn involved. Yeah. I mean, last summer, this this stock was valued at $125 billion. It was a big company. And at that point, you really very few uh, competitors could make a bid to buy. Since then, though, and there's been a stumble, and we'll get to that in a second. But since then, the market cap has fallen to I think it's about 90 billion or 91 billion, something like that, Christine. Right, they're down about 30 percent from those summer 2016 highs. Right, and that's a pretty big dramatic drop in the span of you know eight months or so. And obviously, Icon thinks that it's overdone. He thinks that there could be some value to unlock there, and whether or not he can find somebody who is willing to put up that much money, it's still a ton of money, right? Because it's not just ninety billion. You're going to have to pay a premium uh, on top of that, and you know it's it's going to be very tricky to see who's willing to pay what to get um, Bristol Myers. Um, product lineup. It's an intriguing product lineup, um, but how much is is someone going to be willing to pay to get it? 
Yeah, and I, I definitely want to speculate a little bit on who we think could buy Bristol-Myers. But before we do, you alluded to a setback, which is the reason that they lost all that value. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, the one big reason why Bristol-Myers was such a success story leading up until last summer was that it has arguably the best in class up until that point uh, immuno-oncology drug called Opdivo. And Opdivo is an absolute monster in treating lung cancer. And, you know, peak sales estimates for uh, Opdivo across all cancers had been running at 10 billion, I saw a couple different uh, people uh, with projection. 10 billion a year for one drug would just be amazing or astonishing. That is monstrous. Yeah, the the idea was, okay, we're going to get this on the market early for late-stage lung cancer, so after patients have seen their disease return after a few other therapies. And then we're going to slowly but surely walk that forward so it gets used earlier and earlier and earlier. Unfortunately, last year, in my view, we've talked about this before, in my view it was because of the trial design, uh, Opdivo's uh, trial to expand its use early into treatment fell short. It failed. And what was really, really disappointing about that is that, you know, Optiva goes head-to-head in lung cancer against another drug that works very similarly to it called Keytruda. And Keytruda succeeded. So everybody all of a sudden from, you know, last July up until now has been saying, oh, my God, what's going to happen in in, in lung cancer treatment now with Opdivo's market share? Is it all going to flow to Keytruda now? And, and what's that going to mean for Opdivo's, you know, peak sales projection going forward? So that's why you've seen this, this share sell off and this potential discount that's gotten Icon so excited. Right. And we have, uh, as you alluded to, talked about this Keytruda versus Opdivo battle before. It's in an earlier episode. Um, folks listening, if you just started following along with the show, feel free to email us at industryfocus at fool.com and I'll send you that earlier episode. Um, but people who have been listening for a while, hopefully you remember this story. As Todd mentioned, it was a lot to do with trial design, Opdivo versus Keytruda. Right. And, you know, one of the things I think that Icon is looking at is say he's looking at it and saying, OK, yeah, we've lost 30 percent of the market cap in this company. But really, I mean, is is Optivo not going to eventually get used earlier and earlier and earlier? You know, Bristol Myers is conducting a ton of different studies on this drug, including a bunch of studies that could still make this a first line treatment in lung cancer over time. And you're still, even with this setback last year, you're still talking about a drug that is racking up sales at a pace of better than, I think it's like $4 billion. I had $1.3 billion in sales in the fourth quarter. $1.3 billion in one quarter. So this, is, this drug is no slouch, and I think that sales are going to continue to grow. Um, and if we assume that they're going to continue to grow, well, then maybe you might you know, find some company that wants to expand into cancer that would look at Bristol Myers and say, "Yeah, it's expensive, but you know, really, I think it's trading at like five times sales." And you know, Christine, you and I have talked a lot about different M and A deals in healthcare over the last few years. Five times sales is not ridiculous, especially if you've got you know the potential to have sales grow, you know, ten percent or more uh, annually over the course of the next five years or so. Right, Optivo seems to me like it could be a cornerstone drug of an entire oncology franchise. I mean, if you look at Bristol Myers Pipeline, they have twenty-one drugs and drug candidates in oncology, and they've got this absolute monster in Optivo. And so, when you look at who could potentially take them over, and I'll, I'll be honest, this is a, a name that when I first heard it speculated, I was like, no way. And then when I thought about it, it made sense, and I'll explain. So, I think. Gilead Sciences 
could potentially be looking at Bristol-Myers. And I think that's still kind of a long shot to say. And like I said, when I first heard it, I was like, no, I, I dismissed it. But looking at it a little bit more closely, that is a, a fairly typical Gilead move as far as buying a molecule that is the cornerstone of a potential franchise. And we know that Gilead is looking to get into oncology. We know that they've been holding off on making an acquisition because they said things are too expensive. Well, here's your discounted buy. One thing that does make me pause is the size of this deal. You know, Gilead they have made some really splashy acquisitions, but nothing that's this big, that, that's for sure. I mean, but if you look at their cash balance, they have a ton of cash on the books. They've got, uh, uh, what is it, 30, 30 some billion, Todd? Yeah, I think it's like 32 billion. I mean, this would have kind of the merger of equals almost. I think Gilead's market cap's about 90 billion as well. Yeah, and so if you consider Bristol, and you mentioned this earlier, but Bristol trading for about ninety billion now would probably get some sort of premium above that. So let's say this is a hundred billion dollar buyout for Gilead. If you take their cash value, subtract that, then you end up with needing to borrow about sixty-eight billion dollars. And so I, I'm pretty sure that they could get that sort of loan at an interest rate of, call it 3%. I mean, I know in 2016, they sold bonds that matured in 11 years at an interest rate of 2.95. So if you take 3% of $68 billion that they're borrowing, that's only $2 billion in interest a year, which these two companies combined generated over $5 billion in free cash flow just last quarter. So that that's, you know, annualizes to $20 billion a year. This seems doable to me. Well, I think it just depends. I mean, if Gilead's shares were stronger, I mean, Gilead's got its own host of struggles right now. And again, you know, to new listeners, go back a few episodes. We talked a lot about uh, some of the things that Gilead's dealing with right now. I think if the share price was stronger, then maybe you could make the argument that you could just do a share plus cash deal. Uh, and that might get it done. I'm not sure whether or not that would be easily done here. I mean, there's there's other people who could step up into the fray as well. You've got, you know, huge companies over in Europe that theoretically could come in. You got Roche, for example, which has a 200 billion market cap. You've got Sanofi, which has just been <laughs> trying to do a deal for over a year and a half. They, you know, got outbid from innovation by Pfizer. They got outbid by Johnson Johnson Octillion. Yeah, uh, as, as you put it to me, they've been left at the altar quite a few times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could also argue that a company like Amgen, which has got a, a bunch of money and a $127 billion market cap and a focus on oncology already, um, they might even be willing to step in to try and you know, overcome some of the headwinds that they could be facing because of biologic uh, competitors called biosimilars that, that are starting to roll out for their drugs. And then you've got AbbVie, which you know has a market cap that's similar to Gilead's and also has cash kicking around. Um, and they're facing patent expiration on their best-selling drug, Humira, in a couple of years, and they've already started to make acquisitions to boost their exposure to oncology. For example, uh, they spent $21 billion a couple of years ago to buy Pharmacyclics to get their hands on 50% of Imbravica. So you've got a lot of different players, theoretically, that could make a deal. We didn't even talk about Pfizer, right? I mean, Pfizer at one point was willing to pay, what, $160 billion to combine? Yeesh for Allergan. Yeah. 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 I mean, so I mean, you you could there's there's a lot of potential um, big deals that could be done, and yes, the, the, it would be a complex deal. I mean, you know, and, and then to throw out even one more wild card, right? Because why not? Why not? Uh, why not? Right. The CEO of Allergan is Brent Saunders, who coincidentally was the CEO of Forest Labs when Icon sold it. 
Interesting. So maybe he knocks on you know Brent's door and says, "Hey, I know you just got thirty billion from uh, selling your generics unit to Teva. Uh, you know, you interested in trying to work something out? I don't know. I, I think it's probably a wild card because Alan's already got a lot of debt on the books, but but uh, stranger things have happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it does happen, you can, you can say you called it when. <laughs> yeah, but this will really be interesting to watch. And I, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing Icon speak up about what his intentions are. And I hope that he does. Yeah, and maybe to rein in some optimism here. I mean, don't go out and buy the stock solely because you think it could be an acquisition candidate. I mean, Optivo is a very exciting drug. It's an interesting drug. It's going to be a top seller. But Icon isn't always successful. You know, he gets involved in companies and sometimes deals don't materialize. For example, you know, he he was actually an owner of Allergan uh, not that long ago, um, but only held it for six or seven months. And at one point, he held Biogen shares for four years trying to get them to do something, and it never really panned out. Todd, you keep this show responsible. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So before we move on to the second half of our show, I wanted to mention a new service that's being offered by The Motley Fool. It's called Total Income. And speaking of responsible, it's actually quite a responsible service. So it's all about generating income from the portfolio that you have through dividend stocks and options, bonds, even like real estate. It's it's a totally different type of product than the traditional ones that you guys might be used to. And it's a little bit pricier than our flagship service stock advisor, but we think that it'll easily pay for itself. So, if you're interested, check it out at totalincomeradio.fool.com. It's a really interesting product, and maybe it'll be right for you. So, second half of the show today is also fairly newsy. We wanted to share with you guys a little bit of data that came out for a cell gene drug called Ozanamod. Yeah, one day there's never any shortage of data when you're interested in following biopharma, right, Christine? For sure. We've always got news to cover. Oh my gosh, there's so many different trials that are going on. And, you know, we try not to get too wrapped up in the early stage trials. We like to try and keep focused on phase two, phase three trials, drugs that have the greatest likelihood of of coming to fruition. And this is a big one. This is a potentially huge drug that also is in phase three. Absolutely. I mean, I. One of the things that I think investors were sort of scratching their heads about a couple years ago uh, was Celgene's willingness to pay $7 billion to buy Receptos to get their hands on a phase two drug, a mid-stage drug for multiple sclerosis. And we just found out that they may have been money very well spent. Yeah. And so you say may, there's a little bit of a, a caveat, some hedging there. And that's because we don't actually have the specific details of the results yet. But we do know that in its phase three Sunbeam trial, this drug met its primary endpoint for reducing multiple multiple sclerosis relapses better than Biogen's drug Avonex. And importantly, it did so without new safety risks. So at an upcoming conference, we'll get the specifics about this. But those two things, that it met the endpoints and it did so safely, that's great. That's really good news. Yeah, this is probably one of the most highly anticipated phase three data readouts of 2017. Because multiple sclerosis is a very, very big and important market. You know, there's 400,000 people with MS in the U.S. There's the 2.5 total worldwide. And this is a $19 billion market. And historically, this market has been dominated by uh, drugs made by Biogen, which controls about a third of the uh, market share. Uh, one of the best-selling drugs historically was Avonex, right? And you know that has sort of shifted in the last few years because drugs that have come out 
that are oral drugs rather than infusion or injection drugs uh, are gaining much more, um, I guess, adoption between doctors and patients, right? Who wouldn't rather take an oral drug, right? Exactly. It makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got about $10 billion of, of the $19 billion that are going towards oral drugs. And what makes Azanamod so interesting, this is the phase three drug that Celgene bought from Receptos, okay? What makes this drug so interesting is it has a similar target to one of the best-selling one of these oral drugs, but it could have best-in-class safety. And the drug that I'm talking about is Galenia, which is made by Novartis. And had $3 billion in sales last year. They both, both of these drugs, Glenia and Ozanamod, target the S1P, okay, pathway. And, but the different, there's big differences between these two drugs, right? Glenia is non-selective, okay, where Ozanamod is selective. So it targets specific parts of that target. Okay, so it's it's very very um, differentiated in in how it works uh, within that S1P target, and I think that that is a huge potential advantage that could help it win away a lot of money uh, from Galenia and potentially a lot of money from these other oral drugs, including Tecfidera, which is made by Biogen and had four billion dollars in sales. And even Obagio, which is made by Sanofi and had one point something billion dollars in sales last year, too. So, you know, this is potentially a blockbuster drug for Celgene. And as we've known, and Christine, you and I have seen this time and time again with Celgene, they know how to develop and commercialize drugs that treat major indications like this. Exactly. When you consider that 15% of Galenia patients stop treatment due to cardiac and liver toxicity risks, and that Ozanamod isn't showing any of these effects, you can see why investors and even patients, of course, get pretty excited about this. I mean, when you look at Celgene's strengths, of course, yeah, they know how to commercialize and market a drug. They're also very good at expanding indications for approved drugs. So you, you see Ozanamod really good MS data. It's also being studied elsewhere, um, for example, in ulcerative colitis, and there it could be the first approved medication. Yeah, whenever I look at any kind of company or any kind of investment, I uh, look at different different drugs, I try to figure out what could go wrong, right? And that's why I oftentimes try and hedge things with, with the words may, right? There is one more phase three readout that investors are going to have to pay attention to on Ozanamod in MS, right? If that, if, if that's good, is as good as this one. And the data that they release uh, when they release the full data that we get to dig into, uh, if that's good, then we're going to see a filing for FDA approval by the end of this year. And then potentially that would mean a launch at some point in 2018. At the same time, like you mentioned, we've got some label expansion activity that's going on with different trials, both in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And we should start getting readouts sometime in the next year, year and a half on those indications as well. And overall, that's got Celgene thinking this could be a 4 to $6 billion a year drug. Which is great, because when you look at Celgene's targets for future growth, they're pretty ambitious. They're guiding for around $13 billion in revenue for 2017. But then by 2020, they want to grow that to $21 billion. Right. And a lot of that's going to come from label expansions. And this certainly won't, won't hurt. Right. I think they're modeling a billion dollars potentially of sales from Ozanam and MS. I think that that could be conservative if the label, uh, the prescribing label upon approval uh, is better than Galenia's 
and theoretically better than even Tecfidera. I mean, Tecfidera has been associated with um, some rare cases of, uh, of a rare, rare brain disease called PML. Uh, there's, there's lots of, that's the one thing in MS that people are really, really want is a safer drug that can still deliver that efficacy of re reducing the number of relapses. So if we can come in with a sweet spot, Celgene's got the sweet spot of delivering both the efficacy and the better safety profile, well, then I think they've got a winner on their hands. Yep, that'd be great news for patients, great news for investors. So we'll definitely look forward to the full data released at whatever upcoming international scientific meeting they will release that data at, as well as the later part of the phase three data coming out hopefully sometime soon. Todd, thank you so much for your thoughts today. Folks listening, thank you for tuning in. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!